0: During Holy Week, the most sacred time in the Catholic calendar, the Maryland's Office of Attorney General released a report on rampant child sex abuse and torture within the Archdiocese of Baltimore. We have breaking news here on WTOP. Hundreds of children sexually abused by clergy and staff over a period of 80 years. The long-awaited report on abuse within the Catholic Archdiocese of Baltimore is now out. The report lays out in excruciating detail case after case of abuse. In its wake, Archbishop of Baltimore, William Laurie said, quote, the detailed accounts of abuse are shocking and soul-searing, end quote. For David Lorenz, who leads the Maryland chapter of survivors of those abused by priests, the report marked an end of an era where priests could cover up their abuse in Maryland. They no longer have the legislature in their pocket. Maryland Attorney General Anthony Brown released the report and joins us now. Maryland Attorney General, Anthony Brown. Welcome to the show. It's great to be on with you, Luke. So four years. This report has been in the works for four years. This office has been working and has found some pretty staggering facts and details. 600, 600 victims um, of sexual abuse at the hands of over 150 priests and members of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Tragic, awful, and hard to understand. Before we go into the depths of this report, I want to first lay out what a priest actually means. You know, statistically, many of my listeners aren't part of the Catholic Church, you know, but the priest holds power, holds influence, especially within the context of a church community. Can we first define that relationship and the meaning of
1: what a priest is? Sure. Well, first of all, Luke, thanks for covering this very important uh, issue. And that's the uh, interim report that we released that really was a, a reckoning uh, a public accounting of, you know, decades worth of abuse by priests, Uh, not just priests, also seminarians, deacons, other employees of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Uh, But the question of priests, right, and that it's about a relationship, right? And that relationship may vary from person to person. I happen to be Catholic. uh, And the relationship that I had with uh, my priests uh, growing up uh, was one who I looked to as not only the 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 leader of the of the parish the congregation of the church as i knew it and was experiencing it uh a a spiritual leader and someone who reflected the values that were uh, taught through the catholic church uh, whether in mass on sunday Mm -hmm. or uh, school if you went to a catholic school about the values that were that stem from jesus christ uh and um so People see in a priest someone who they can trust, uh, someone who they can have confidence uh, with—a confidential uh, relationship. Right? Think about the confessional and what you confide in a priest that you may not confide in anyone else in your life—an um, advisor, sometimes a mentor, a coach, someone who is in a position of trust—and um, and that trust was abused in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Mm.
0: Now, to the report itself, to my reading, it's a 500-page report, but there are two main findings. One, incidences, detailed incidences of sexual abuse, and two, a cover-up. You know, these are the two main kind of movements of this report. Let's first talk about these incidences. Each are individual and different from one another, but they follow similar trends. Can you lay out for us what that trend was and what this report really found?
1: Sure, and I think you're right. I mean, of the... Uh, 600 survivors who we interviewed um, after we you know back in 2018 we had an email address a hotline telephone that people could call into and we had you know 600 survivors countless witnesses who led to many other uh, survivors and witnesses for us to interview over a four-year uh, process when what we what we heard uh, were very unique stories um, you know, some of them involve physical abuse, some of them literally torture, mm-hmm. emotional and psychological abuse, sexual abuse for, for sure. Um, each one, though, was unique, uh, but we do see common patterns. And the pattern is of a priest or in the case of uh, some cases, there was a coach who abused their power and authority that they had over. Um, some of the most vulnerable people you can imagine, and that's children. Mm. Uh, and again, children who look to that priest, who look to the church for safety um, and and sanctuary.
0: Now, moving on to the cover-up. You know, when I read this report, I was personally shocked by the cover-up within the church, but also how the church, you know, from the 50s to the 90s contacted judges, contacted journalists, and orchestrated these cover-ups for so long. Can you talk about that aspect of the report?
1: Sure. So I mentioned that, um, you know, from 2018 to when we finalized the report, you know, initially when we sent it to the circuit court, the end of 2022, we reviewed hundreds of thousands of documents, transfer reports, treatment reports, personnel, uh, files, policies, and procedures. And What we saw and where we focused was really on the Archdiocese of Baltimore, the decisions uh, made uh, by the Catholic Church hierarchy, and we saw these intentional, deliberate efforts uh, to conceal and hide known abuse, um, in some cases excusing it as a minor lapse or Equating it to alcoholism that could be treated in some simple, you know, 10 step program, which I think is a value when you're talking about um, alcoholism, Mm. but proves to be unsuccessful when you talk about pedophilia. And even when these issues were brought to the authorities of local prosecutors, law enforcement, at least in one case, a judge, and even a newspaper, um, they were ignored. And we see no evidence in those, in many cases where anything uh, substantive uh, or serious was done of that matter. And what we saw was that the defense, if you will, the excuse offered by the abuser was given much more weight than the claims that were being made by the abused. Mm. Um, in some cases, suggesting that the abused and or their family were... You know, non Catholics or non believers, and discounting the survivors, the abused, the survivors, um, as incredible. Yeah.
0: And a third step, kind of in this tragic progression, is at some points these priests and those who work for the archdiocese were moved after, you know, an incident was reported, no accountability was given, and then they were moved and sometimes aggressed again. I mean, it's just hard to believe, really. It really is
1: yeah you know, it, it really is. I mean, and I agree with you. I mean when you look at uh, some of these personnel uh, moves, some of them were from one parish to another within the archdiocese, uh, literally from one community to another. Um, others were moves outside of the archdiocese that may or may not have included uh, a a short stay at at a treatment center, uh, supposedly to to treat priests, uh, where we see uh, the evidence in many cases proved, as you as you uh, in- stated in your question, uh, uh, repeat abuse even after this, you know, purported treatment. Um, so it was an effort more to protect the reputation, the position uh, of the institution, the church, the archdiocese, than it was in protecting uh, the children who were violated in such a depraved and sadistic way. Mm.
0: And, you know, it should be noted that the time frame of this investigation is around from the 50s, 1950s, to the 90s here. And in the report, I also noted a subsection where there was an evolution of law surrounding sexual abuse and how that evolution of the law also uh, revealed more and more how pervasive the sexual assault was within, you know, the church. Can you talk about that progression at all?
1: So the law in Maryland uh, that defines the criminal offenses of rape, of uh, sexual assault has evolved over the years and um most of the abuse that happened in the 40s the 50s the 60s through the 90s um back then some of it would not have been met the today's definition of rape right um and as a result those offenses were considered misdemeanors And that is what ties my hands as the attorney general in bringing indictments uh, because misdemeanors have a one year statute of limitations. Mm. Um, Had they been considered felonies at the time, there's no statute of limitations. And I would be able to not only investigate, uh, but um, seek indictments and prosecute where uh, the evidence would support a prosecution. But as you mentioned, the law has changed in Maryland for the better. Because now this conduct today that we have reported on in great detail in in our uh, report uh, would rise to the level of felony. Mm. Uh, And it also applies to, because I often get the question, well, uh, what about um, criminal prosecution against the archdiocese as an institution, some notion of conspiracy or Mm. accessory after the fact? But there, too, um, that conspiracy is a misdemeanor and accessory after the fact actually doesn't apply for misdemeanors. So there's right now no evidence that we have that would enable us to bring a criminal prosecution against the Archdiocese of Baltimore.
0: In other words, it's locked in time, locked in the past legally speaking.
1: Short of any new information that's uh that uh is more current, mm. um we based on the inf- the evidence that we have, the information that we have, um criminal Uh, indictments and prosecutions against abusers and the Archdiocese of Baltimore right now is not available. Mm.
0: And this progression of the law, you know, continued in the hours after this report was released. You know, the Maryland legislature passed a bill that would kind of extend the statutes of limitation for some of these sexual assault incidences. What would that do? What impact would that have on what's covered in this report?
1: Yes. And to be clear, the statute of limitations that you're speaking of is uh, the statute of limitations for civil cases civil actions that uh, a survivor may bring against an abuser or the catholic church and about a month ago I sent a letter of advice to the General Assembly saying that if they eliminate the statute of limitations, I am confident that I can defend that in a court of law, because there are questions about whether or not you can change or eliminate the statute of limitations. And we opine and we feel confident that you can. One hour after we, we released the report, the General Assembly, in fact, did pass that law, and my office is prepared uh, to defend it. That applies to civil actions taken uh, by uh, those who were abused by the priests and seminarians and deacons. Um, When it comes to criminal offenses, you cannot go back and change the statute of limitations. To be clear. To be clear.
0: Mm. So again, this timeline that I underlined earlier, 1950s to 1990s, I think a big question in so many people's minds now, when they look around after reading this report, is, has this stopped? You know, has the church reformed? Did the report unveil anything you know new past this timetable can you give any assurances or some understanding about the now portion of archdiocese of baltimore
1: sure look it's not my position to give assurances about the archdiocese of baltimore or any other um, non-governmental institution that's not my client uh, and even when they are my client sometimes it's hard to give assurances but what i can tell you is uh, that uh, the among the hundreds of thousands of documents that we reviewed The type of uh, depraved uh, and sadistic treatment and abuse uh, that we saw um, trailed off significantly after uh, 2002, Mm. Um, and we see the 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 greatest numbers predating 2002 in the in the mid to early 1990s, 1980s, and of course going back decades. So I, I don't want to be the one who says that the, whether the Archdiocese of Baltimore has you know, reformed to a level that there's no abuse. I don't want, any, I don't want to suggest that there uh, is necessarily abuse happening today. Um, I can tell you that, um, again, of, among the 100,000 documents that we reviewed, we saw a significant trail off uh, after 2002.
0: Now, this report is revealing it creates some transparency. And we heard from victims at WTOP who said just that, that this is a relief in some sense. But on the same or on the other side of that same coin is there's still more accountability to be had. So what's left on the table legally that your office can do to, you know, hold people accountable that did these awful things?
1: Well, a few things. First of all, and we, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that um, the release of this report, as I heard from the survivors with whom I met before the release, this for many was a relief yet pain and suffering continues. It was a a reckoning. Uh, they had many of the survivors had told their story on countless occasions. For some of the survivors, the first time they told their story was when they told it to one of our investigators or attorneys. Mm. It was a a public accounting, with a level of detail not seen before. So the survivors, and you know I, I can't speak for the survivors, but in the conversation I had with the survivors, there was a level of gratitude that finally, uh, their stories uh, were being heard. In terms of going forward, and we were asked about, by the survivors, we've got a, an investigation in the Archdiocese of Washington, DC, which covers portions of uh, Maryland and the National Capital Region. Uh, the Diocese of Wilmington, Delaware that covers Maryland's eastern shore and some northeastern counties. We still have an ongoing investigation. We have um, issued subpoenas at the same time that we did for the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Um, We did not sit idle. Uh, My predecessor, Brian Frosch, I think rightfully so, decided to focus um, most of the attention and the resources of the office on Baltimore to complete that um, but now we, you know, we continue in the investigation. So that's one thing. And we'll see what we uncover um, and whether or not there uh, will be indictments coming out of that investigation or not. It, it's it's too premature for me to say. We still don't know. We still don't know. But there is the opportunity for, again, because of the action of the General Assembly, uh, for survivors to bring uh, civil action. We, we also invite those who... Are listening, those who are watching, those who are reading, uh, if you're a survivor also and, or a witness to any of these accounts, we're encouraging people to come forward. Because while we have submitted the interim report with some redactions um, made public, I should say, we made public this interim report, we still invite those who have information about, about abuse in the Archdiocese of Baltimore to come forward. Mm.
0: Now, if you flip through this nearly 500-page report, you will see some redactions, some black Uh, blocks, blocking names. What do those mean, and will those ever be revealed? What's the issue there?
1: So I'll start with the latter part of the question, and there is a, um, uh, it's certainly possible and maybe even probable that those redacted names will be revealed, and let me explain why they're redacted. As I mentioned, we went through hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. The lion's share of those were Produced by the Archdiocese of Baltimore through a grand jury subpoena, and as you and many of your listeners or viewers uh, know, that information that's obtained through a grand jury is secret and confidential, and it can only be revealed upon order uh, or you know permission of the court. So that's why we've been working in the Circuit Court of Baltimore City for four months to have the report disclosed. So what the the entirety of the report. Um, What the court has ordered is in the case of those redacted um, names uh, and the names were uh, found by us, discovered by us through this secret grand jury process to give those people an opportunity uh, to look at the context in which they are included in the report and to file objections with the court. So we will notify these individuals to give them that opportunity to do it, and rest assured that our office uh, will certainly make the strong case for uh, removing the redactions or disclosing those names, and ultimately the decision will be made by the court.
0: Mm. Now, before we move on to a few other topics here uh, within your office's you know purview, any final thoughts on this report?
1: It's been... Uh, One of the most difficult things that I've had to uh, address in my 20-plus years of public service, I was pleased to read years ago, four years ago, when Brian Frost, my predecessor, working with then-Governor Hogan, uh, committed the resources to undertake this investigation. And I just want... Uh, the people, survivors, and the public to know that I am committed uh, to completing the investigations of the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. and the Diocese of Wilmington, Delaware, in as uh, expeditious uh, and thorough manner as possible.
0: After a short break, we'll hear why Maryland's top prosecutor wants the power to prosecute police officers. We'll be right back. Now moving on and switching gears a little bit. The Maryland House of Delegates also voted, you know, in the hours after uh, the report to give your office the power and authority to prosecute fatal incidents involving police. And that's instead of the state local's attorneys. What will that move if signed by Governor Moore allow your office to do?
1: So, just backing up a little bit, 2 years ago, the Maryland General Assembly gave the Office of the Attorney General the authority to investigate police involve deaths, and then they expanded that to incidences uh, that could likely result in death. Uh, So what Brian Frost did is he established the Independent Investigation Division, uh, and that's what we do. Um, As of our most recent annual report, because we've been in existence now for close to 18 months, maybe a little longer, uh, in our first report, uh, we reported on uh, 24, 25 such investigations. Uh, it's our responsibility to independently investigate. We work with the Maryland State Police. We have our own investigator, investigators. And then we send a detailed investigative report analyzing the facts and the law to the local prosecutor who decides whether or not to prosecute that police officer in that particular case. Uh, This year, what the General Assembly just did is they extended to my office and the Independent Investigation Division the authority to prosecute those cases. We now have the Mm. Once the governor signs the bill into law, we will now have the exclusive authority to act on that investigation. And why is that important? It's important. It's a best practice. And I think while you saw the state's attorneys uh, around Maryland oppose uh, this bill, they opposed the investigation authority two years ago, they inv- they opposed um, transferring the prosecutorial authority this year, notwithstanding their public opposition, um, I believe that most prosecutors would tell you that it is a best practice for the prosecutor who's involved and leading, in some cases, the investigation to actually do the prosecution because the investigation shapes the kind of prosecution that you are going to pursue in court. Uh, So it's a best practice, Mm. number one. Number two, it instills even greater confidence um, in the public about the integrity uh, of the investigation, the prosecution. And I can tell you, while um, there was opposition uh, from uh, the Fraternal Order of Police. At the end of the day, I think this is a good thing for police officers because when the Attorney General informs the public that after a thorough investigation, a decision is made not to prosecute, mm. I think that carries significant weight and I think is of value and important for uh, members of law enforcement. Mm
0: and it, it dawns on me you know not to relate these two entities the catholic church and you know the police but the attorney general's office is tasked with investigating organizations that have lots of power you know in our communities uh, can you talk about that aspect of your job and your office's job
1: i would say you know when when someone asked me you know what what, what is the role of the attorney general we are in large part as the chief legal officer Of the state, to enforce the rule of law, this notion that no one is above the law, no institutions are above the law, no matter how revered they are, no no institution or member of an institution is above the law, no matter how important a role that they play uh, in our societies and in our communities, and the attorney general. Um, is one of several players, but I would say perhaps one of the most predominant uh, um, players in Maryland in any state uh, that ensures that we abide by the the laws, the rules, the regulations that govern civil conduct in a society. That's our job. That's my job.
0: And it's an interesting time, I think. Because, you know, what this report shows is that sometimes people were above the law, you know, and there's some instances within police. Sometimes it seems to the public that some police are above the law in the past, you know, going all the way up to the top with President Trump in that recent indictment in New York. Is this a notable time where the law needs to be re-established?
1: Well, I think if you look through the history of our nation, there have been times where the rule of law has been shirked seemingly more so than right. at other times, right? You can go back to the Nixon-Watergate era and, you know, a president who believed that he was above the law and then our most recent, you know, 45th president uh, who believed the same thing. Um, so, it ebbs and flows and not just at the federal level, but at state and local level. Um, so, you need the attorney general, and you need states' attorneys. They they enforce uh, criminal laws. You need you need all public officials, county executives, and members of the general assembly. We we are and should be held to a higher, if, if not the highest, standard of ethical conduct, and that is our responsibility to in, to enforce ethics, to enforce the rule of law. Mm.
0: And you know, just to close up here, it's your first three months. It's been a busy first 90 days. I think that's fair for me to say, Um, how has it been? You know, how's it been being attorney general in Maryland?
1: You know, I um, uh, sort of tongue in cheek uh, three months ago, because I was sworn in three months and three days, who's counting, uh, (laughs) ago, uh, I said to uh, Larry Hogan, our former governor, uh, I said, Larry, um, I want to thank you for um, what happened in 2014. You may know that uh, I ran against, uh, Larry and I ran against one another and and he won. (laughs) I said, you know, Larry, if, if we didn't have that outcome Uh, eight years ago, I wouldn't be sworn in today as Maryland's attorney general. It's a great job. It's an opportunity to make a big impact. We've talked uh, um, uh, today about, you know, sort of bad things like clergy uh, abuse or child abuse by clergy and crime uh, and the rule of law. The work of this office spans everything from consumer protection, protecting our seniors and our most vulnerable, um, Medicaid fraud, antitrust securities. We protect the environment. We review contracts on behalf of every state agency and and regulations to make sure that they're consistent and fair and equitable before they're promulgated. So, it's a it's a large law firm and it's a real honor to be able to lead the men and women uh, who have made a commitment to serve the people of Maryland in this office.
0: Attorney General Anthony Brown, thank you so much. Thanks, Luke. And before we go, it's worth noting I invited Archbishop of Baltimore William Laurie to come on the show in the wake of this report. He did not respond to that request. And that'll do it for us today here on the DMV Download Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and let us know how we're doing. Give us some stars and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. This show is brought to you by WTOP News. Listen on 1035 FM in the DC area, 1077 FM in Virginia, and 1039 FM in Frederick, Maryland. Online at WTOP.com. And of course, on the WTOP News app. Have a great week. We'll talk Wednesday.